we turn together once again to the book of Genesis. I had picked up a habit in Uganda that will serve me well here at least this morning. I had the opportunity and the blessing in the span of a week to preach nine times, three times one day, and I was encouraged. And I said to the students, each time that they filled the chapel, I looked at them and I said, you came back. To which their response would be, as I have now taught them, and I expect to be sweeping across Africa in the next year or two, I taught them to respond in the best of New York fashions. Absolutely. (laughs) And so I'm trying to leave my, my linguistic mark upon Africa. But it is a marvelous thing to have the Word of God. Because no matter what language it is in, it is still inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I said to them every single time that I preached the same thing that I say to you every time that I preach. That the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. This is not philosophy. This is not wisdom. This is the direct word of the creator of the universe to his people. So let us now then begin to look at Genesis chapter 37. We will be reading the entirety of the chapter. But before I do, let's pray for God's blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning, Lord, that you would meet with us that you would not only, Lord, gather us into your presence, but that by the power of your Spirit, you would create and strengthen faith in us, that we might believe your Word, that we might trust your Word, and that we might be changed by your Word. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis. Chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them, to, his, to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him. And could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. 
his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him in one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on the way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. 
Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, we have now come to the place in Genesis where the last section of the story is before us. This is where Joseph's story begins. It is the longest section for a patriarch in all of the book of Genesis. And there are more words recorded from Joseph than any other patriarch. And yet there is a a very curious thing. Of all the patriarchs, Joseph has the fewest references in the New Testament. There are very few. One, in fact, just describes a place that he owned. There are only three or four references, depending upon how you view them. And yet Joseph is a significant patriarch. He is the one who reminds us that God is in control and that God is the bringer of death and of life. As we shall see throughout the text this morning, for someone who is mentioned least in the New Testament, he bears a striking resemblance in so many ways to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning I would like us to look at this story of Joseph and his brothers And to see three things. First, to see the sovereign choice of God. Second, to see the selfish rejection of that choice by man. And third, to see the superintending ways of God. A sovereign choice. A selfish rejection. And superintending ways. This teaches us that in spite of all that we are afraid of, God is in control. And we see that first in God's sovereign choice. And you see, perhaps the most interesting thing about the sovereignty of God is that God is actually sovereign. You see, I think sometimes we would desire a sovereign God who is really just a very, very powerful figure to work our will. You see, we want to be the sovereignty behind the sovereignty. But that's not the way the world works. God is sovereign in His ways and in His choice, and so often that is not what we expect. You see, the Scriptures are the story of God's redemption of His people. And we do believe it. And I have to say to you that there are many today perhaps in this room and certainly out and about in the towns, who believe that God will redeem His people, the only thing is they expect Him to do it as they would have it, according to their standards. For some, 
God is to redeem the earth through education. To some, he is to redeem the world through evolution. To others, he is to redeem the world through power and might. You see, we expect our ways to be enacted upon the world. We expect God to act with power to back us up. And you see, the irony here is, this is how little faith shows itself. If what you are counting on is for God to smash all of your enemies immediately, you must know that that is not God's way. That is your way. The Lord God is long-suffering, and you are a testimony to it. If you have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that you have not been obliterated and burning in hell forever is testimony to His long-suffering. The fact that I stand here before you speaking from God's Word is a testimony to His long-suffering. And you see, this is a temptation here, if I may say it, on Easter Day. It is the pinnacle of the power of the church year. It is when we celebrate the great victory of King Jesus. At Christmas, we look and we see the mild Christ child. But now we see the king who has conquered death. And we expect him to conquer all of our enemies and to do it right quick. But this is not how God acts. Because you see, God's ways are not our ways. He promised to Adam and Eve that he would redeem a people, but he did not do it then. They gave birth to a son named Abel. And in God's providence, he was killed by his brother Cain and replaced by Seth. And then as time went on, God started anew with Noah and his family. These do not seem to be the ways of victory and power, do they? We don't count it a victory when someone starts afresh. And then even as the other patriarchs were born, it was not Ishmael the elder, but Isaac. It was not Esau the elder, but Jacob. You see, we must get into our heads that God's ways are His sovereign ways, and He is not bound by our perceptions, by our convictions. You see, the Lord acts not in power, But in weakness, we saw this in the previous chapter in Genesis 36 of Esau and all of his descendants, a large family of princes, kings, and rulers. And as we look at them, we ask ourselves, if we were given a choice, would we rather have the power and might and glory of kings or a wandering 17-year-old shepherd boy? Who would you trust to carry forward God's plan? But you see, the scripture tells us that it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man in Psalm 118. And of course, that famous Psalm 146, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. And so this story unfolds once again, The generations now of Jacob. We have seen this phrase, the generations of before. In the Hebrew, it is the word toledot. And we've seen the generations of Adam, and the generations of Noah, and the generations of Isaac. And now we come to the generations of Jacob. 
But you see, with Jacob here, the emphasis is immediately on Joseph. It is not a coincidence in your Bibles and in the original that the very next word after Jacob is Joseph. Even that is not what we expect. Who are the generations of Jacob? Well, there is Reuben. There is Simeon. There is Levi. There is Judah. There are all of these other sons. Joseph comes near the end. Why is he placed at the front here? And I think it's because the Lord is showing to us that he will redeem a people in weakness. And that is why Joseph bears such a striking resemblance to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is perhaps the preeminent type of Christ in the Old Testament. That great lover of all things typological, A.W. Pink, has found 101 ways in which Joseph is a type of Christ. Now, I won't spend the rest of the morning going through them for you. And I'm not even sure it's a valuable exercise to go that deep. We must understand here that there is a deep connection between Joseph and our Lord Jesus Christ. A connection in their character, a connection in their providence, and a connection in God's purpose for them. We even see it in the language of the New Testament. If you have your Bibles with you, flip to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. And you will see how the story of Jesus Christ begins. The very first gospel begins... The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. If that were written in Hebrew, that would be the Toledot of Jesus. It is the book of Jesus Christ. You see, both of these men, one a man and one the God-man, are used by the living triune God to redeem a people to himself. And Joseph is not the man that we might expect to be involved in this grand scheme of redemption. He's not a man of might. He's just a young man of 17. He's not someone who is in charge. When the text tells us here in verse 2 that he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, that doesn't mean that he was 8 or 9 years old because we already know he's 17. What it means is he was a helper. He was not in charge. You know what that's like, don't you, young men? You know, one of the things that I think caused me not to really ever learn how to do anything mechanical with my hands, although I am a plumber in Uganda, was that I spent time with my father repairing things, but the way, the time that I spent was I got to stand around and hold the tools. And when he would ask me for one, I'd give it to him. And I never knew what was going on. And my job was basically to just stand there and be an active toolbox. You know what that's like. Young men, you want to get in there. You want to get after it. Dad says, no, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down, partner. Just stand there and hold the screwdriver. Right? It's not very fun, is it? It's not something we want to do. We don't want to be the carrier of the lunch bucket. We want to be the one who saves the day, who fixes everything, that gets the kudos. But that's not who Joseph is. Joseph is the errand boy of the shepherds. 
a pretty dirty and miserable job in and of itself. And he doesn't even get to help the sons of Jacob's legitimate wife, Leah. He is put underneath the sons of the concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. And what we learn here is that Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher take after their half-brothers. Because just as Reuben was a sinner, just as Simeon and Levi were sinners, and just as next week we will see Judah is a great big sinner, so these sons are sinners. The family of Jacob is not exactly known for its virtue. Jacob, or Joseph was not expected to do much. Now, don't assume what you know now about Joseph. Don't look ahead in your mind to the one who was second in command to Pharaoh. You must think of him as the one who is simply killing time. You see, Joseph could not see the end that God had prepared for him. But he was loyal and faithful and righteous in the task that God had given to him. You see, I think this is sometimes a temptation for us. We will agree to follow God's law, to be righteous, to be morally pure, if God gives us good things to do. If God throws all kinds of converts our way. If God gives us opportunity to influence people of power. But you see, the Lord God is saying to you right now, whether you are changing diapers or taking a math test or cutting the yard, you are to be faithful and loyal to the Lord God. That is where it begins. If you, do, if you are not faithful in a little, you will not be faithful in much. That is where it begins with Joseph. How this reminds us of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was not what was expected. What was expected was a great Messiah King who would come and take charge, who would never serve, but who would order around and gain great victories. But he came as a child. And he served others. And not only did he serve the proud, he served the meek and the lowly, the prostitutes of the land, the tax collectors, the lepers. You see, this is who Jesus Christ is. This is the one who rose from the dead. It is the one that was not expected. And you see, God's sovereignty is revealed in His own manner. How do we know that God is in charge? Well, we see it first in providence, second in character, and third in revelation. First in the providence of God. We see here that Joseph is favored by Jacob. Our text tells us that he was the son of Jacob's old age. And of course he was the son of the favored wife, Rachel. There was a deep and abiding affection that Jacob had for Joseph. This obviously lets us know that Joseph held a preeminent place in the family. And at the same time, as we read those words, we are regretful for this, are we not? Because you see, Jacob did not learn the lesson of his youth. His father favored his brother, and his mother favored him. How well did that work out? 
And yet here Jacob is enacting the very same sin. Just as a brief aside, parents, especially young parents, this is a warning to you. Because you will have children who are more capable in certain ways than other of your children. You will have children who are more like you, and hence you will like that more, than others who are more different from you. But it is death to the family to show favoritism. You see it over and over again in the scriptures. And here, by the very act of showing a favorite love, Jacob will wind up losing his son for decades. We see it in the providence of God. He's favored by Jacob, but there's more than just favor. You see, Joseph is the heir of Jacob. I know we love this idea of Joseph and the many-colored coat. There's even Broadway plays about it, right? Musicals. But you see, the truth of the matter is, this phrase is only used one other place in the Bible. We're sort of guessing that's what it means. And the way we come up with, in many of the translations, the idea of the many-colored coat is not from the Hebrew, but from a Greek translation of a word that means manifold or many. And we assume it is many colors because you're not going to put on six cloaks. So it must be something that is many about the cloak. But it seems to me that the other place where this is used in the Scripture, in 1 Samuel, it is a description of a royal robe of one of David's daughters. And a description that it is a robe that goes down to the wrists and nearly down to the ankles. It is a long robe. It is a distinctive royal robe. Now, why would Jacob make Joseph such a robe? Well, ladies, have you ever tried to do hard housework in a full-length gown? A full-length gown with a sweater length, arm length top. Not very easy, is it? No. There's a reason for that. When you wear that kind of clothing, you're the sort of person that isn't to do manual labor. You are set apart. That's why kings and princes and princesses and fairy tales wear these kind of long flowing robes. And you see, what Jacob had done here was he had given an external sign that Joseph was to be his heir. That Reuben had sinned. And he was not going on to Simeon. He was not going on to Levi. He was not going on to anyone else. Joseph was to be his heir. Now maybe we understand more why his brothers hated him. It was about more than they couldn't have the same kind of fashion sense. It was that they knew that Jacob had made him the head of the family. He was to get the double portion of the inheritance... And when Jacob died, Joseph was to be in charge of them. He was to be the patriarch of the family. We know this additionally because in John chapter 4, where Jesus comes to meet the woman at the well, there is a place in Samaria called Sychar near the field where Jacob had given to Joseph. Jacob owned virtually no land. This is the only land that is described as being given by Jacob. And so Joseph was the heir of the family and the property. 
But at the same time, this caused a great rift. You see, Joseph, because of his skill, because of his integrity, because of his loyalty, because of his faithfulness, he was hated by his brothers. God also manifested his sovereign choice of Joseph in the character of Joseph. He is faithful among a faithless group. Now, we often look at this text and we see Joseph and Because the scripture nowhere says anything bad or wicked about Joseph, we like to point at this, especially the siblings amongst us, and go, that Joseph, what a tattletale. Had to tell on his brothers, right? And we all know nobody likes a tattletale, right? And so that allows us to put a little distance between ourselves and Joseph. But you see, Joseph was not a tattletale. You know how that works, kids, don't you? This is when your brother or your sister is spying on what you're doing and then of their own accord goes to mom or dad and says, you'll never guess what Bobby's doing. You'll never guess what Jimmy's doing. And usually most moms and dads will say, don't even start with me. I don't want to get into it. Right? Here we have an instance where Jacob has told Joseph to watch the goings and comings of his brothers because Jacob knows that his sons are doing things that are wrong. Things that could be dangerous to them. After all, they've just had to leave Shechem because two of his sons have gone on a murderous rampage. So Joseph is merely being a man of integrity doing what his father has tasked him to do. He's a man of fine character. And the third way that we see God's sovereign choice of Joseph is in the revelation of these two dreams. Now, these are not fancies. They're very specific means of revelation from God to Joseph and on to all of Jacob's family. The first is a dream of agriculture, about sheaves binding up and bowing. This makes no sense to us. It made no sense to the brothers. They wondered if it was just some excuse for him to lord it over them. But once we know the rest of the story, we understand why sheaves of grain are used. Because it is Joseph that the Lord will use not only to save Jacob and his family, but the whole world through grain. And then there is this second dream that includes not only the brothers, but the mother and the father. And the interesting thing here is you can judge the hearts of the men involved by their reactions. Do you see how Jacob's other sons react? They're emotional. They're hasty in their judgment. They don't seek to understand it. They don't want to know if God is saying something and they don't want to know what it is. Whereas Jacob while he is originally disturbed, there is this marvelous phrase that is used elsewhere in the Scriptures that he took this and he pondered it in his heart. He thought on it. Of course, the other person who's famous for this is Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jacob is thinking, is God saying something to me here? What is God in charge of? And then we see the selfish reaction of the brothers. You see, they do not like Joseph. 
Everything about Joseph is wrong to them because he has integrity, because he has faithfulness, and because he shows that they do not. And so we have this second incident where Jacob sends Joseph off, and he is a picture of faithful obedience. Now imagine this. I don't like it when I'm in the middle of something and my wife says, would you please run over to the store and get something for me? I think, oh, come on, really? Do we really need it? Can't it wait? But you know this. You've done this. Now imagine if someone came to you and said, oh, uh, Joseph, please do me a favor. Would you go about four days journey and you know the brothers who can't stand you? You know, could you go check on them and then report back to me, would you please? Now, I'm thinking most of us would, in the middle of that conversation, try and come up with two, three, four excuses why we couldn't go. Our feet hurt, it's late, it's a long journey, they don't really need it, can't you send somebody else? What does Joseph say? Here I am. What do you want me to do? He's instantly faithful. He's instantly obedient. Because he seeks to honor the Lord. This is a way in which we get a picture of Jesus. You see, I think, I fear some in the world today picture the atonement in this fashion. That the Father says to the Lord Jesus Christ, you must sacrifice. You must die upon a cross to redeem a people. And Jesus says to the Father, what really? No better plan? Couldn't we do something else? How about start over? And maybe they go through a litany back and forth and finally, oh, okay, I guess there's no other way. And we picture Jesus as being somehow a reluctant Savior. But you see, Jesus is like Joseph here. The Father says to him, we are going to redeem a people. Son, you go and you die the wicked death of a criminal, the most excruciating death imaginable, and you will be separated from me and from the Spirit. It will be horrific, but it is what is required. And Jesus stands up and says, Here am I. Send me now. He longs to redeem his people. I dare say we could say that Jesus Christ had one of the deepest desires of his heart to die upon the cross because he knew the purpose of it. Jesus was sent into a hostile situation in which his brethren hated him and did not want him and did not want to be redeemed. While we were yet enemies with Christ, he redeemed us. So it is here with Joseph. He goes out knowing that they do not want him, knowing that they hate him. This is how we must go out. It is how we must have the attitude of our heart and of our mind, knowing that if if they hated the Lord, they will hate us. But we must persevere, because you see, this is the other thing that Joseph shows to us. He goes out and he looks, and they're not to be found. Now, what would we do? You can answer that for yourself, but I know what I would do. I would look around and go, well, they're not here. Guess I can go home now. Right? You've done everything that was asked of you. You have followed the law to a T. But Joseph goes beyond. Do you see that? 
He just happens to find this stranger in the providence of God. And he asks, where are they? Well, I think they went over to Dothan. Okay, I'll go to Dothan. And he continues on. You see, Joseph is a model of hard-working faithfulness. And Joseph loves his enemies. You see, he thinks the best of others. He comes and he walks up. Now, can you imagine? Dad is nowhere to be found. Dad's a week's walk away. And Joseph strolls right in, expecting his brothers to treat him as he would treat them. You know, I'll show my age, but one of my favorite series of movies is this movie called the Pink Panther series. And you remember what Inspector Clouseau did every time he came into his apartment, right? He would come in, and he was immediately ready to be attacked by Cato, right? And they would destroy all kinds of things and break through ceilings. And But the point is, he expected violence. He expected an attack. And Joseph here, who has every right and reason to expect an attack, comes forward with a heart that seeks the best for his brothers. Now, when we talk about Inspector Clouseau, it's funny, but do you expect an attack when you go to a restaurant? When you go to go visit your local school, do you expect warfare? When you walk up to a neighbor to tell them about your life and about the Lord Jesus, do you expect fisticuffs? Or do you treat them as you would like to be treated? You see, we must do that, Joseph shows us, even when it does not work out like we hope it would. Because, of course, for Joseph, it does not work out well. He falls into a selfish plot of his brothers. A plot that begins with envy, moves to hatred, and ends in murder. Now, you see, their envy has taken over them. They begin by mocking Joseph. They call him this dreamer. You you can't read those words in the scripture without a sarcastic voice. You've got to. Oh, it's the big shot. It's the dream boy. You got another dreamy dream boy? What kind of dream now? Bring it on. That's their attitude. They envied him and they envied his role, but you see, they don't stop with mocking Joseph. They go on to mocking God. Look at verse 8. They hated Joseph for his dreams, but what did they hate him even more for? His words. The words that came from the Lord. You see, they thought that they could stop God. That God had placed Joseph over them and they were going to stop God. They were going to take actions and make the dreams not true. Make God's word not true. Isn't this exactly what our Lord's brothers did to him? They thought they could stop the work of God by killing Jesus. They thought they could end the change. That they could stay in control that they could maintain what they wanted merely through their own actions. And you see, this kind of mocking doesn't stop. It moves on to hatred. And they grab Joseph. And they seek to kill him. And murder fills their heart. And this is the fruit of sin. 
You know, in Galatians chapter 5, it describes the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And the fruit of the flesh includes envy and hatred. They show how callous and indifferent and hate-filled they are. You see, we have this picture that they throw Joseph in this pit and they leave him there. But they don't just leave him there. They throw their brother in a pit to die and then they break out a picnic. And while they're eating the picnic, their brother is screaming from the bottom of the pit, please save me, please show mercy, please help me. And they say, pass the salt. Oh, I'd like a little bit more bread, please. You see, the scripture tells us in Genesis 42, verse 21, that they completely ignored his cries. Do you feel attacked? Do you feel like you have no hope? Do you feel like the world is against you and the things will never be put right? This is the way of the children of God. You see, it's not just Joseph and it's not just you. This is the story of our Lord. As he hung upon the cross, what was the main activity that happened around him but mocking? Mocking from soldiers, mocking from priests, mocking from people, even from the two thieves on either side of him. Mocking him. Oh, you think you're God? Well, save us. This would be a sad and sorry state of affairs. If the lesson of this text were, Jesus had it rough, Joseph had it rough, buck up. You can handle it. You'd have no hope. You'd have no hope and you should carry me out of here. But you see, the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the hate-filled. It doesn't end with the attacks. It ends with God and His superintending ways. You see, in spite of the deception enacted by the brothers, in every way, Reuben tries, quote, to save him. But all he's really trying to do is to save his own skin. He knows he's on the outs with dad. And he figures if he delivers Joseph back, he can get back on the ins. Judah tries to show false compassion. Oh, well, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery instead. And I love this phrase. He says, let's not lay our hands on him and kill him. Oh, you mean the hands that have already grabbed him and thrown him in a pit? Because why? He is our brother. He's our flesh. Hypocrisy, thy name is Judah. And then, of course, they go to Jacob after they have sold Joseph into slavery. And they deceive him. And the scripture has a a delightful way of reminding us of our own sin. Do you see what they do to the coat? The text tells us that they kill an animal. And they smear its blood on the coat. Do you see what kind of an animal it is? It's a goat. Where have we seen a goat before? You'll find it in Genesis chapter 27 verse 9 where Jacob takes a goat's skin and puts it on his arms to deceive his father. You see what goes around comes around in the world of sin. But God will not be stopped. 
In spite of all this deception, in spite of all that is before him, God is there in his wisdom because he is not absent. All of these providences, all of these happenings, the ill-fated errand, the meeting of the stranger by chance, Reuben's acts, and then the fact that he is not around, all of these things happen. The Midianites just happening to stroll by at this time. All of this is not just happenings. You see, in the midst of all of this pain, in the midst of all of this sorrow, God is at work, and God is at work redeeming His people. God knows the end. He knows that He is going to save Israel and His family. And God is not impotent. He is the one who can save, but He is doing it by His purpose. He has arranged all of this. He has foretold all of this. And you see, the problem is we can't always see. Who would have wanted this? No one. But you see, in order to understand that, you must go backwards. You must take off your joy. You must not think that this is resurrection day. Because you see, so often we live in the Friday, do we not? We live in the Friday of despair of marriages that are not what we thought they would be. We live in the Friday of trouble when our children are not who we thought they would be. We live in the Friday of despair when we look at all of the days that we have wasted. And we are not who we thought we would be. You see, this is Joseph's Friday. You have your own Friday. But what you must never forget in the sovereignty of the living God is that while Friday is black, Sunday is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to redeem for Himself a people, to gather them up and make them perfect. All of your sin will be washed away. All of your relationships will be restored. All of the curse of death will be reversed. Do you believe that with your soul? If you do, then you must run to Christ. You must not let go of Him for an instant. You must not plan. You must not scheme. You must know that the only way that life can be found is in the resurrected Lord and our faith in Him. No, better yet, your faith in Him. Not your parents, not your children's, not your siblings, but your faith in the risen Savior. We will see this acted out in weeks to come, how Joseph is saved. This is how God saves his people. In weakness, in unexpected ways, but always in sovereign power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would remind us that there is hope Not even, O Lord, as we say so often in cliché, where there is life, there is hope. But more specifically, Lord, where there is Jesus, there is hope. We ask, O Lord, that you would change us, renew us, convict us, that we might follow after the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.